0: You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. And this week is a very special week. It's episode 100, and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Bill Shirtleff, uh, authors of The Book of Tofu, The Book of Miso, and The Book of Tempe, uh, and founder of the Soy Info Center, originally founded in 1976. Welcome to the show, Bill.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
2: So, Bill, I'm really curious about your first motivations to visit the East, because I know a lot of your uh, your ideas about food have been influenced from Eastern cultures. I know that's also where you met Akiko, and you're inspired to venture into your studies on soy. So I'm just wondering uh, how how Eastern cultures have inspired you agriculturally, economically, and spiritually as well.
1: Um, I lived for two and a half years in California at a Zen Buddhist monastery named Tassahara. And after practicing there with Suzuki Roshi for that time, uh, he suggested that I should go to Japan because he wanted to set up a temple for Westerners—a place to practice. I shouldn't say a temple, a, a zendo for people to practice. To go to who wanted who are going to Japan looking to practice Zen. So I went to Japan for that reason. And while in Japan, uh, I had very little money. And as we ha- we had. Disco- I had discovered toy f- soy foods already at Tassahara, foods like tofu and. So and so forth. But in Japan, they were a really important part of my life because I had to live for 30 cents a day <laughs> for <Wow>. many years <laughs> um, because I had very little money. And so I realized, wow, there are a lot of other people on this planet who would like to know about healthy sources of protein that are so inexpensive. It costs 30 yen, which was something like 12 cents in those days for a pound of tofu. Um, And so after using that as part of my daily diet, I thought, you know, I really would like to write something about this, both for, for Americans who are looking for sources of right livelihood, in other words, good work to do, and for people all over the world who are looking for foods that they may never have heard of before, like tofu and tempeh and miso. And that was how this work got started. And why was it in Eastern cultures? It's because in Eastern cultures, that's where soy foods are used as part of the daily diet, like we use bread in the West.
2: And how do you feel about integrating soy into a Western diet? And I'm just, I'm curious, since it's a little more difficult, and the fact that most soy grown in the U.S. is genetically modified, and how do you that's see true. overcoming that obstacle?
1: But it is, a, it is an obstacle, except that almost none of the soy foods that are made in America are made with genetically engineered soybeans. In other words, every single tofu company and miso company and tempeh company that I know of um, buys their soybeans with, by, well, by a special relationship they have with an organic, non-GMO grower. And it's just not a problem. I, I, in fact, I challenge somebody to find soy foods that are ma- that are made with ingredients that are not um, that, that that have genetically engineered you know soybeans in them. I agree that that way of, I mean, there, there are grave dangers with genetic engineering, and there's been a wonderful book that's been written during the last year or two. Um, that goes through this in great detail. The, hist- the history and the, the cover-ups and, and the whole story um, of the, the, the attempts by our government to force, and Monsanto, to force through this technology because it's such a big source of income for the United States. So I think it is important to avoid genetically engineered soybeans, but it's not difficult if you're buying foods.
0: Um, And thinking of of producers in the United States, I have to assume that uh, your work uh, with the books that you produced, uh, and specifically even the, the miso production book, I'm assuming that those books influenced most all of the producers in the United States. Is that correct? Or were there some before you had produced these books?
1: Well, it's not so much before us. There are two types of soy foods makers in America. Those that come from East Asian countries, such as Japan or China or Korea or Taiwan or whatever, and those people almost never use hard work <laughs> <laughs> because they they know how to make these foods you know as they, and they do that when they come to this country because they see it as a source of livelihood you know a good way to a good right. way to make a living but but the Caucasians who have started companies, and there are a lot of those, and many, many of them have been hugely successful, like White Wave, for example, have used our books. And we have done a production book to correspond to each of the basic book of tofu, book of miso, book of tempeh. So there's a tempeh production, tofu and soy milk production, miso production, all of which are geared to the person who wants to start a commercial shop. And those books, I think, have been very helpful to those people.
0: And could you go into a little bit of detail? Uh, I'm just impressed by the years of research um, and hands-on experience that went into these um, these books here because— um It doesn't seem always to be the case anymore with with books written today that this this much demanding research, I mean, today, I mean, I can just kind of go to Google and search for a lot of information, but I'm assuming that wasn't really as accessible before. So could you go into the detail of... There
1: wasn't any Google, there wasn't any internet (laughs) for the first 20 years that we were doing this work. Exactly. Um, And so the way that you learn about that is by being in the country and talking in Japanese, to companies that sell equipment, companies that buy equipment. Um, you know, you just become familiar with the, with the whole environment of starting a, a commercial shop. And then you ask hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions. You know, how do you do this? How did you do that? And take hundreds of photographs, you know, that you can use, that you can put in the books. And so that's, it was a hands-on field research, is what I would call it.
0: Excellent, and it really shows. I mean, and, and the books have have lasted. It's excellent work.
1: They're all basically still in print, and we have been continuing to write books free on Google Books after those books that were that are sold, you know, were finished.
0: So you do have other books then that people can uh, can access for free.
1: Here's how to do it. We have about seventy books published on Google Books, and so you you just. You go to a you you Google <laughs> shirtless Aoyagi, which are the names of the two authors, and let's say you're interested in tofu. You you would write history of tofu in quotes, or history of miso, or history of tempeh, because we we publish the books as histories so that people can see where these foods came from. At least all the ones that we have. You know, done on Google Books have been histories, and so those are available to anybody who has internet access.
0: And now that you mention that, I have actually run into those uh, books many times—not even specifically researching uh, uh, for for your books, but it comes up often in those those histories.
1: Exactly, and in fact, we get calls from people who find stuff, find information in those books that had nothing to do with what they were looking for, but there was the information in our book based on an interview that we did with somebody fifteen years ago, or You know, the books are just packed with information. And it's very carefully, it's not information that's written by me, but it's information that comes from documents. Let's say, for example, that there was an early Chinese document about this or that. We work with a Chinese translator to translate the soy part of the document, and then it becomes part of a book called The History of Soybeans and Soy Foods in China. So in that sense, I'm not writing it. I'm just serving to make the inf- information available to people in English. And, and and if it's of any interest, the book that I'm working on right now is A History of Soy in Eastern Europe, where these foods are just thriving because people in Eastern Europe who were formerly living under a communist regime, young people are looking for good types of of, of, of livelihood, you know, ways to earn a living. And many of them have found that making soy foods where there's no competition whatsoever is a great way to do it. And so I've been, you know, in touch with people today by email, uh, getting updates on companies in, in Croatia and Serbia and uh, who knows where all over Eastern Europe.
0: Is that part of what keeps you you going with all of this? I mean, is the is connecting with all people around the world and, uh, and connecting over soy foods? I mean, what is it that keeps you, keeps you going, and keep writing more?
1: Well, the reason that I'm interested in soy foods is that there, as you know, the soybean in America has traditionally been used as a source of livestock feed. The protein in the soybean is used to make livestock feed. And the oil is used as the most widely consumed vegetable oil in America. And being a vegetarian and a vegan, I am totally opposed, completely opposed to this system of feeding soybeans to animals, killing the animals, and then dying of the diseases that come from eating all of this meat, basically. Meat and, you know, dairy products and other things. But we just have a diet that the human organism was not built to eat. It's like feeding Kool-Aid to your car, you know, and therefore the number one cause of death in America is heart disease, um, which comes from eating all of these animal products. And the planet is not going to be able to support for much longer this way of using the crops that that the earth produces. We're going to have to use these crops directly as food instead of running them through animals and then eating the animals. And so... To get back to your first question, when I, got, when I graduated from Stanford, my fundamental question was, what can I do to make this earth a better place to live? And uh, I very quickly found out that what I wanted to do was related to soil. It just fell into place quickly. And living in Japan, I could see this is the answer to the problem of an alternative to the American Meat-centered diet, and so I took it and ran with it, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And the reason that, it, that I enjoy it every day is because I can't stand to see this much waste and suffering on the part of animals that comes with the way that we use animals in America in such a, you know, as a, as a way of getting money. And, and by the way, have you ever heard of the book *Eating Animals*?
0: No, I can't say I have
1: by Jonathan Saffron Foer, F-O-E-R, the best book I've ever read about the way animals are raised in America today. And I would recommend that book to everyone. Um, people think, for example, that chicken, you know, is a healthy food. It's, it's just the, the worst, you know, of all the foods that come from animals that I can think of that I would not want to put in my body. Chicken would be number one. And there are many reasons for that that I won't go into here, but that are discussed in a very beautiful way in this book, Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron-Fur.
0: I'll make sure that that goes in the show notes as well. Thank you for that. And and so you're looking at at soy foods as a protein substitute.
1: No, not substitute.
0: I'm sorry, excuse me. Yes, (laughs) exactly. A a, a protein.
1: As a source of protein.
0: Yes, exactly. As a source
1: of protein that serves maybe maybe my word would have been alternative, that's what threw me off, but as an alternative to the protein that comes from eating animals. And we in America are among the countries in the world that have the highest per capita animal protein consumption. It takes about 10 pounds of soybean protein to make one pound of beef protein to show you how inefficient the whole process is. In other words, if you ate the protein directly from the soybean in the form of tofu and so forth, you could get 10 times as much protein as if you fed the soybean to cattle and then ate the cattle. So it's like a protein factory in reverse. It's it's a very inefficient way of using the earth's ability to produce good quality protein.
2: Yeah, and I feel this is a really great criticism of industrial agriculture, the unfortunate food system we deal with and as far as having feedlots, animals raised on feedlots. How do you feel about smaller farms who are raising animals on pasture in their more natural way?
1: Here's the problem, and this is something that Jonathan Saffron for for investigated very carefully. There are almost none of those. And so let's break the categories down into chickens, pigs, and cattle. Mm-hmm. There, there are one or two companies in America, that is to say family farms in America, that are raising cattle in the natural way, which means letting them eat grass. One or two. And Whole Foods buys most of everything that they, that they get. So the only problem with that is that the, the, the cows leave, lead, lead a good life, but the slaughter is absolutely horrible. The way that they're slaughtered is horrible, and there's nothing they can do about it because the USDA defines that. With pigs, all the pigs in America, there are no family farms for pigs left in America anymore, not one. You could drive all over the country looking for one, and you'd never find one. There's one family farm that raises turkeys in a nice way, and there are none that raise chickens except for maybe your next-door neighbor, you know, who might have a little chicken pen in their backyard and raise a few chickens. So it's not like there are a lot of family farms raising these animals in the way that they did 50 years ago, where they care about the welfare of the animals. 50 years ago, in throughout America, if a person raised animals and one of those animals was getting sick, the farmer would stay up during the night, you know, to to tend tend to the animal, to to minister to its needs. Now they just kill it and throw it in a bucket or bin or trash bin. So it's changed completely. It's changed from being family farming 50 years ago to being corporate farming today, where all they're looking at is how much money can we
0: make. Researching uh, having you on the show, um, I ended up coming across an article um, from 1977 from Mother Earth News. And it's, it's just surprising how much um, in that interview that you had, that it doesn't really sound much different than it is uh, is today. do you find that the things that you have been pushing for uh, and for the change, do you feel like things just continue to get worse? Or um, are there small wins in the direction that you'd like to see?
1: Well, certainly there are more. For example, I never heard the word vegetarian until after I graduated from college. I didn't know there was such a thing. I didn't know that that was an alternative that somebody could consider. I never met a vegetarian until after I graduated from college. And so I think today's young people, almost everybody in America has heard of vegetarian. And most people in America have heard of alternatives to eating meat. And so in in that sense, the, the, the environment has changed tremendously. Secondly, there are a lot of good foods available today that were not available at all. At the time those Mother Earth News interviews were done, Um, and so yeah, I think that the work of thousands and thousands of people, um, both Americans and immigrants, have changed the climate, um, at least in the field of soy foods, which is the field that I know best, and you know where I, I I know know people and I keep in touch with what's going on. So I think there have been tremendous changes. But on the other hand, the situation has gotten worse at the same time. Okay. The way of raising animals has gotten dramatically worse from the point of view of the animals. But let me give you uh, two examples. The first is the way that animals are bred. Let's take chickens, for example. Chickens are bred in order to have as much meat on the bird as the breeder can possibly get. And in order to do that, they breed. They put on so much meat that the the chickens' legs cannot support it. And and so this, again, in the book Eating Animals, is a major problem. That even if you raise these chickens under lovely conditions, they can't stand up.
0: Yeah, and I've seen that firsthand, and it's it's very sad.
1: Uh, it's terrible. And this. And the second problem is that these chickens are raised in um enclosed feeding environments where there's something like 30,000 packed into one large um, facility. They need to feed them antibiotics so that they don't get sick. And do you know, do you know why antibiotics are fed to, to animals? They grow 10% faster on antibiotics. Antibiotics is a source of growth as well as a way of protecting against disease. And so the the breeding ground for for drug-resistant bacteria is in these chicken farms. And that's a major major problem in the world today, drug-resistant bacteria. If you get one of these, you know, you can die from diseases that that had been they know that we're basically under control 20 years ago. So the way of raising the animals has gotten much worse since the time of those Mother Earth News interviews. And the alternatives have gotten much better.
0: Well, and what could be, what could be done to make, it, uh, make things even better in, in your field with uh, soy foods? Like, uh, are there any rooms for improvement there, or is it really just an awareness of what's already available?
1: Well, it's always nice to have new companies start, you know, and have new products and and introduce foods to new people. And I'm not interested in people eating soy. If somebody says, I like rice milk, or I like uh, peanut milk, or I like, you know, whatever it is, as long as it doesn't come from animals, that's fine with me. So my interest is in in doing away with the feedlot system and doing away with the way that we treat animals so cruelly and cause them so much suffering. you see the difference? In other words, I'm not, I'm not promoting soy so much as I'm promoting um, vegetarianism. Now, you might ask, why did foods like miso and soy sauce come to exist in a country like Japan? The Japanese have had a vegetarian culture since about the year 600. That was when Buddhism was introduced from China to Japan, and the Japanese had a prohibition since about that time from eating four-legged animals. Um, they didn't have chickens. They did eat fish, which they caught in the oceans, um, but they wouldn't. They didn't eat pigs or cows. Or anything like that, and instead they ate a largely a vegetarian diet, using soy foods such as tofu as their source of protein, and they they developed fermented foods as a seasoning, because without miso and soy foods, I mean without miso and, and to- without miso and soy sauce, um, soy foods can be quite bland. Tofu can be quite bland. If you ever tried eating tofu straight, you know, you wouldn't like it at all. I mean, it's just it, it's, it's not meant to be eaten that way. But with miso or soy sauce, it's delicious. In fact, I had that for lunch today. Um, a tofu sandwich with soy sauce and a little bit of garlic powder and dill pickles on it. That was my lunch. So I use, I use those fermented soy foods almost every day as a source of seasoning um, for what would otherwise be a bland diet.
2: And Bill, do you think that the pescatarian diet is a sustainable diet for today in in Western culture, or is it more so or less so compared to Eastern cultures?
1: The the problem with a diet of eating fish is that we have turned the oceans into a sewer, Mm -hmm. and not only from all the runoff that comes from every single farm on the planet but also in terms of the big disasters like the Fukushima Daiichi you know nuclear disaster which causes anything that's raised in that area to become radioactive Japanese won't eat um, food that comes from the northern half of Japan because the water there is so radioactive and or if you're talking about the Gulf, remember the Gulf oil spill about four or five years ago? Sure. Oh, yes. Not mm-hmm. only did we have millions of gallons of oil go into the ocean, but we had millions of gallons of toxins that were supposed to disperse the oil and break it up into small globs so that they could get a, a handle on it. Who would want to eat something that was raised in that area? And so I don't, think, I, I, I don't think that eating fish, and, and there's one more, I don't think that eating fish is a good idea at all. I think fish is a bad source of food because it's polluted by the oceans, which are themselves polluted. But there's another problem. We have overfished the oceans to the point now that most ocean species are in decline in a way that's not sustainable. In other words, if we keep doing what we're doing now, those species are going to, to become extinct. We're just treating this planet as if it, there's no future. Do you, does that answer the question about... That, pes- that does, so-called yeah. ...so-called pescetarian? I mean, and, pe- the and word so- pescatarian is a relatively new concept in terms of vegetarian. If you, if you look at when it was first coined, I think it was probably... Uh, sometime in the 80s or something like that, which enabled people to say, oh, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm a pesco-vegetarian or I'm a pescatarian or something like that, which which kind of disguised the fact that they weren't a vegetarian. But as the oceans get more and more polluted, that option becomes less and less viable.
2: Are there any other big issues you see in the planet in relation to food that you'd like to share with listeners?
1: Um, The biggest issue is that the population of the planet, most people don't know the rate at which the population of this planet is growing. One United States full of people is added to the planet. In other words, if you take the population of the United States, which is about 300 million, um, that many people is added every three and a half years. Now, you just can't, there's not enough room to grow the food to feed those people. And the first thing that's going to have to be done, if you want to feed... Well, the first, the, the first thing that should be done is to have, as I think one of the top priorities in the world, is to bring population growth to zero so that we don't... You know, that we have a population of, a, of fixed size on the planet. But that's not happening at all. Um, and second... If you're going to have more and more people, then you have to use the land more and more efficiently, which is what started me uh, after college of looking for ways to feed an expanding population. You have to turn to a vegetarian diet. A vegetarian diet will allow you to feed something like seven times as many people as a meat-centered diet. And that's the reason, parenthetically, that people in Japan... And China and most of Indonesia and most of East Asia have largely a vegetarian diet because of their high population density. They have no place to raise animals other than pigs that forage for themselves, you know, in a place like China.
0: Well, now that takes it right back to uh, what you were talking about with the, the feedlots and everything uh, Discussing about that, just because it's like we don't have anywhere else to cram that much production of of. Animal meat in, um, so uh, it's going to continue to get worse and, and worse until I guess we run out of uh, space for animals, even in feedlots. At which point, we'll be forced to follow this other way. Is that what you think will will happen? Or
1: I I, I don't I don't think it'll happen that way. Um, I think as long as people can make money off of feedlots, they will always find places for feedlots. Oh, okay. um, but I think that the the really revolutionary, if a person wants to do something that really is going to help the planet, it's not driving a um, Prius, you know, or, or driving a more efficient car. It's becoming a vegetarian. Becoming a vegetarian, in my opinion, is the single biggest thing you can do to ensure the better future of the planet. And anyone can do that, you know, anytime they want to. It's, a, it's an easy step. It doesn't, requ- doesn't require organization. It just requires you to know what you're doing and to learn a few things like, you know, what, what, what nutrients do you need and so forth.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. And uh, and then for anyone that that wants to go down that vegetarian diet, that maybe is new to it, I mean, definitely um, your books are are very inspiring. And uh, then for a lot of our listeners that uh, like to ferment things at home, you have those in your books too. And so thank you so much for being on the show and 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 for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, thanks, my Bill. pleasure. It's
1: a pleasure being on your hundredth show, and and keep up the good work. It's people like you who change the world.
0: Thank you. And then where should people go if they would like to find out more, like maybe your website?
1: Our website is www.soyinfocenter, S-O-Y-I-N-F-O-C-E-N-T-E-R. One word, Soy Info Center, like dot soyinfocenter.com. And there we have a lot of free resources and free books for people.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much.
1: Good to talk with both of you.
0: And we'll have all those uh, uh, links in the show notes as well. And you can find those at firmup.com slash podcast slash 100. And until next time, firm up.